Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. We're here every Monday morning, sort of. <clears throat> so we're 10 a.m. on Eastern Time, but since this is global, it could be any time where you are in the world. And our back shows are on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And I'm I don't have a guest today, so I'm going to sort of free associate. But I started with thinking about uh, commenting on our last two shows where I interviewed John David Ebert, and we talked about a series of French thinkers, uh, Michel Foucault, Lacan, Deleuze, Derrida, several others. And I'm an academic, sort of. <laughs> I teach architecture. And so architecture is, of course, the mother of the arts. So we're the uh, most sophisticated uh, discipline. But I'm in a school with uh, people in all disciplines at a college. So uh, these figures, these French intellectuals, sort of dominated the scene 15 years ago. Uh, Not so much today, but... The people teaching today are sort of um, students of those who are dominated by them. So they're still around, and I, uh, I think on a, on a deep philosophical level, I agree with much of what they say, but they've been very badly understood and interpreted by academics today, leading to some very bad things happening, I think, in academia and as I was thinking about this, <clears throat> I thought back to a time when um, the world was much more open. Uh, so I was uh, titling the theme for today's show, Whatever Happened to the 60s? New Age Thought, Open-Mindedness, and, um, Alternative Realities, Alternative Consciousness, Openness to Eastern Thought, Free Expression, and... I was listening to PRN this morning. I drop in at various times throughout the day. And then when I get, you know, caught up in something, I'll go look at the back shows of that show. And we had on this morning Alan Watts. And Alan Watts is, uh, you know, you hear him occasionally on this station. You can also go to Google and find uh, find um, his recordings. And... He was a very influential thinker in the in the '60s, and he was uh, sort of a bridge between East and West. And so, um, Alan talks about uh, a kind of experiential way of being in the world, and he did a, a kind of freelance, a free form uh, translation of the Tao Te Ching, um, many books. And I'm very disappointed that people like Alan Watts, or other than hearing him on the station, 
not really with us anymore, and we're not thinking that way. And this is all uh, current in my thinking because I teach a course in non-Western architecture. So we look in depth at the cultures and therefore also the architectures of Japan, China, India, and we look at Buddhism, Taoism, and my approach is being forced out <laughs> after this fall. Coming fall, I'm not going to be teaching it anymore. And my colleagues uh, teaching other sections of the same non-Western course, um, non-Western means uh, uh, anti-colonialism and post-colonialism and uh, Orientalism. So post-colonialism is a study of the, okay, um, we today have very few colonies. Uh, the countries that were colonized during the uh, 16, 17, 1800s into the first half of the 20th century, after World War II, uh, there was this rapid decolonization and Dozens and dozens of countries became independent states. Uh, but what's the after effect? How, how does, um, how, what does it mean to Algeria that they had been a French colony, to the Philippines that they had been a Spanish and then an American colony, uh, etc.? <clears throat> so that's what's studied by post-colonialism. And typically, the post-colonialist scholars uh, take a Marxist approach. Well, to me, Marx is a Western thinker. It has nothing to do with non-Western cultures. And having studied Buddhism for many decades, Taoism with uh, um, Professor Ching-Ming Chang, uh, you know, I'm sort of into these other cultures, shamanism with Michael Harner, and I try to present that in my teaching. Well, no more. <laughs> We're not going to be doing that anymore in uh, in my school. And instead, we're going to have these Marxist interpretations of uh, the Western approach to colonialism. The other thing that's very much in Fed is something called Orientalism. And uh, our approach to Orientalism comes from a book by Edward Said. Said, unfortunately... Um, died a few years ago, uh, quite young. He taught at Columbia, and his book, Orientalism, looks at how the West sees the Orient. Uh, mostly, in his case, he's Palestinian, uh, Christian Palestinian, but he looks at how the West sees Islam, uh, Middle Eastern countries, and we have, from the 17 and 1800s, of course, this romanticized vision, uh, which is labeled the other. Uh, so this strange uh, other culture. And um, Saeed wants to uh, try to claim that much of this view is inaccurate. And, of course, some of it is, but a lot of it probably isn't. So, uh, but we've now entered an era, and I've encountered the term native informer, 
uh, we're not supposed to even talk about these other cultures. We're not supposed to know about them, and we're not allowed to talk about them, which maybe is why I'm not going to be teaching this anymore. But we looked at uh, last week and then two weeks before that, uh, John David Ebert introduced us to these uh, French intellectuals who were extremely influential on contemporary academia. And none of them, uh, well, they talk about notions of the self, uh, different notions of consciousness. Who are we? What are we? And with no reference to other cultures, with no reference to China, Japan, India, to Buddhism, to Taoism. And my contention is that um, these traditions are very influential not only on um, countries today like Japan and China and India, but have uh, for several hundred years been seeping into our own culture and are influential on our own thought. So uh, the way Joseph Campbell likes to describe it in around 326 B.C., Alexander the Great broke into India and uh, he, you know, he had conquered, um, he had conquered Greece, and then he had conquered North Africa, and he had defeated uh, the Persian Empire, incorporated all that into his empire. So he said to his troops, "Let's let's uh, let's go east. We'll conquer India, and then we'll get uh, we'll sail back to Greece by coming around the long way." And uh, they went into India, but after. Three years of athlete's foot slogging through the mud, his troops said, uh, we had enough, we want to go home. And uh, on the way home, uh, Alexander died and his empire was broken up. But in, in India, the Alexander and his troops, many of whom had studied philosophy with, uh, with Aristotle, as had Alexander, encounter the... Um, shall we say, the precursors to Buddhist thought. And they bring this back with them. It becomes Neoplatonism, which is one of the foundations of Christianity. So already these ideas are coming into the West as early as uh, 327, 326, 327 B.C. So I think it's uh, of value to study this, although my colleagues don't, uh, apparently uh, <laughs> to uh, uh, encounter people of these other cultures is to uh, speak with native informers who apparently are bad guys. Uh, I have to learn more about what a native informer is. But anyway, uh, this strikes me with how uh, the way we we're so open to and absorbing of these Eastern cultures in the 1960s. That was when I began studying Buddhism with Chungam Trumpa Rinpoche, began studying Tai Chi and Taoism with uh, Chingmeng Chen. And I don't see, and my students were, some of them were going to India for, you know, to, to see their guru. I don't have any students going to India to see gurus. I have students coming from India, but they're uh, quite westernized. 
And of course, as I've mentioned before, 20% of our students now, my school, are from China. And this is typical of a lot of schools. And not Chinese Americans from China. We also have Chinese Americans. But, uh, you know, they, uh, maybe their family has some Buddhist traditions, but not really. You know, they uh, uh, are don't really know anything about these cultures, about Taoism or Buddhism. So we're kind of, again, expunging that material from our culture. Uh, but it's going to creep back in. And I've been thinking about how it creeps back in. One way is through, uh, through uh, our interest in quantum theory. So uh, <clears throat> there's a... Uh, one of the last books by Herbert Gunther, who's a great German translator of Buddhist material. He says, finally, I can start to explain this because of the thinkers like uh, Foucault, etc., and um, quantum theory. We now have a vocabulary in the West where we can think about and know about this um, Buddhist material. You know, you, you, you can translate the words, but unless the concepts are there, it doesn't mean anything. And one of the things that quantum theory gives us is a notion of interrelatedness and of the role of the observer. So we have a notion that, uh, you know, remember Schrodinger's cat, the cat is neither dead nor alive until we open the box. And then it's either dead or alive. <laughs> so um, how, how can that be? The cat's got to be one or the other. Well, in quantum theory, no. <laughs> the particle does not go through one slit or the other in the two-slit experiment until we look at it. You say, well, uh, let's, you know... Let's measure. We'll catch it going through the slit, and we'll know which slit it went through. No, if you do that, it uh, it does go through one slit or the other, but it's no longer a wave. It becomes a particle. It goes back to being a wave when we're not looking and doesn't resolve until later. So that's called the um, quantum weirdness. And uh, Feynman used to like to say, everything you need to know about quantum theory is in the two-slit experiment. And then he also says nobody understands quantum theory. So I uh, last night watched a movie, and the movie is called The Discovery. And that sort of ties us into this material. So this is a 2017 British-American romantic science fiction film and it stars, among others, Robert Redford. So he plays the old guy. He's no longer uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I don't remember which one he was. But he, um, he plays a scientist who has made a remarkable discovery, the discovery, which is that there is an afterlife. Now, if you believe that, you believe it. So why, why do you need a discovery? But in this movie, he has identified 
what brain waves do after death. And he's sort of able to demonstrate they go to another realm. Well, <laughs> uh, um, I, uh, I have a perverse sense of humor, so maybe, you know, I see the movie somewhat as a comedy, although it's in no way meant to be. But uh, four million plus people have committed suicide uh, in, in, <laughs> to get to this other realm. <laughs> You know, my life here sucks. There's this better realm. Uh, I can blow my brains out. And so the movie opens with um, Robert Redford being interviewed by uh, by Steam Virgin, uh, who is saying, do you feel responsible for these four million people who have committed suicide? And he says, no, I mean, I, I didn't create this other realm. I just revealed that it's revealed that it's there. And <laughs> right in the middle of the filming, apparently it's a live interview, uh, one of the engineers walks in front of the camera and puts a gun to his head and blows his brains out. So, um, you know, another idiot. But we're supposed to be very concerned about this and take it seriously. And the film then brings us to uh, an island where... He has an old abandoned mansion that had been a, a kind of a school. And he has there a few dozen followers whom he had helped and now help him with his experiments. So he has rooms filled with, you know, wires and things to attach to the scalp and oscilloscopes and um, video screens and etc. And he's trying to... F- find out more about, okay, what what happens after death? And so, without giving away, (laughs) avoiding spoiler alert, uh, but um, it appears that um, maybe we live on many different, well, I'm going to use the term, in many different parallel worlds simultaneously, and uh, you sort of jump from one to another. There's minimal or maybe some communication from one to another. And we, um, maybe in death, we go to one of these other parallel worlds, and things might be better, they might not, which is, you know, why... I mean, why all these people were killing themselves? Where's the evidence is going to be better? But anyway, um, which takes us to something interesting, which is the many worlds theory of uh, quantum theory. So what happens in quantum theory, sort of uh, the quantum weirdness that has everybody... um, okay, where do we go from here, is that when the, uh, there's something called the the two-slit experiment. And what happens is you have, uh, say, a piece of aluminum foil, and you put a couple of slits in it, and you fire a beam of light at it. And some of the light's going to go through one slit, some of it's going to go through another. But 
what happens is, without going into detail, because that'll be a distraction, but what happens is when you send one particle of uh, one photon, one light particle at a time, it, in effect, goes through both slits. And, well, how can that be? And so, um, you know, it's a photon. Well, that's what it does. And then if we look at it in a certain way, it will have gone through one slit or the other slit. And so our observation of it um, changes its behavior, even after the fact. And so this is totally established in quantum theory, and, but quantum theorists don't like to talk about it. In fact, as these problems became apparent, there was um, developed what was called the Copenhagen Interpretation in the late 1920s. And what that said was, well, the temptation was to ask, what is really going on here? And the, <laughs> the, the Copenhagen Interpretation says, you can't ask that. Um, there, there is no really going on here. Um, and another way that it was put was when students of quantum theory would ask their professors, what is really going on here? What does this mean? The response was, shut up and calculate. <laughs> In other words, do the math, do the science. Uh, we're not allowed to ask metaphysical questions like, what is reality? So... Um, but there were people who sort of broke away from uh, broke away from that uh, <clears throat> that demand that you not ask that question. And actually, uh, they were some of the ones doing it were not of major importance. They were a group of physicists who uh, maybe had minor appointments here or there, but they started meeting in the early 1960s at Esalen Institute and <clears throat> talking about what are the implications of this for consciousness. Like, for example, uh, can our consciousness affect the way what happens? And um, is, uh, you know, what is observation? How does it affect and change reality? And is does this justify... Uh, a belief in in uh, psychic phenomena. Is it possible to communicate from one mind to another? Is it possible to have communications faster than the speed of light? And so these uh, these figures worked on all this. There's a beautiful little book uh, describing all this called "How the Hippies Saved Physics," and by the hippies it means these alternative quantum theorists who were did not have academic appointments or major ones, uh, but who were willing to ask these far-out questions like, you know, what is the implication of this for consciousness and can it, uh, does it have implications for um, uh, psychic phenomena? Anyway, uh, I, I uh, read less than I used to, so if you're interested, yes, How the Hippies Save Physics is available in audio. So uh, look it up and um, um, definitely recommend it. But anyway, one of the um, 
So people started to think about, well, what does this mean? And one of the interpretations, um, which is uh, was proposed by a then student named Hugh Everett. So he was a student at Princeton and a student of uh, John Archibald Wheeler. And he said, wait a minute, what if when the particle gets to the two splits, the two slits, or to put it in terms of Yogi Berra, when you get to a fork in a road, take it. In other words, what if the particle becomes two particles, the universe splits, in one universe it goes through one slit, in the other universe it goes through the other slit. So that's called the parallel worlds or the many worlds interpretation. And it's actually taken quite seriously by physicists. And um, one of the uh, physicists who takes it most seriously is uh, David Deutsch. So David Deutsch wrote a book called Fabric of Reality, which is very well received in which he looks at um, evolution, quantum theory, Poplar's approach to science, and tries to put all of them together in one unified theory. And the book is totally interesting, although most people feel that um, he was not necessarily successful in a, in a new grand unified theory. But he has a more recent book from, when is it? Uh, 2011, which is recent to me. <laughs> I, I sometimes take a while to get caught up on this material. It's called The Beginning of Infinity. And it's a very interesting book in which uh, by the beginning of infinity, he means we are um, starting with modern science. We have achieved infinite capability. There's no limit. Um, you know, if we can explore further, there's no limit to how far we can explore. We can make more powerful computers. There's no limit to how powerful the computers can be. Once you are open to uh, the modern scientific worldview, which, you know, begins, say, with the Enlightenment, um, you have this... Um, infinite uh, potential. Anyway, the, uh, the, the book is interesting to me, among other reasons, right now, because it contrasts between this openness to these infinite possibilities and being closed to them, which leads me to another favorite book, uh, Virginia Postrel's The Future and Its Enemies. And so Virginia Postrel proposes, boy, am I digressing? Is this fun or what? Um, so Virginia Postrel, and hopefully she'll be a guest in uh, sometime in the future, proposes that there are two kinds of people, stasists and dynamists. So dynamists are open to a dynamic, unlimited, unpredictable future. If you're going to be open to the future, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, go back to the um, go back to the internet, and two years before it broke loose, 
it was there, but, you know, nobody was using it. Nobody was talking about it. I was actually building an online company at that time, and I went to the major conference. We were using we were using bulletin board software, and at the conference, everybody was there, you know, AT&T and all the telecommunications companies, and the word internet was never spoken. Next year, I went, and that's all anybody was talking about. So, boom, it happened just like that. Nobody had predicted it. So, uh, being open to the future means being open to things we can't know or predict, and a lot of people are not too comfortable with that, and Virginia Postal labels them stasis. They want things to stay the same. <laughs> then she says there are two kinds of stasis. Those who don't want any future, let's stop it all now. <laughs> you know, we're in a perfect condition. Uh, we just have to do some mopping up and get uh, more uh, communal control over our technology, but no more. And the other kind of stasis are open to the future, but only if they can control it. And, uh, you know, we're going to tell you what kind of future we're going to have. And then you wonder, um, is that really possible? Uh, what do they mean by that? How, you know, what, how can you know what the future is going to be? And talk a bit about that in a moment. But, yeah, that's what they mean. And, in fact... I subscribe to a British magazine called New Scientist. And, you know, reading between the lines, just the attitude of the way uh, they think in England in the, and in Europe in general. Uh, yeah, you know, they, they consider, um, you know, you're not free to just make any future. The larger community is going to decide. And if you think about it, going back a bit, uh, Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, every one of them is an American company, with the exception of Skype that was uh, developed by a European kid. But every single one of them is American. And they don't allow innovation in Europe. They import from America that innovation which they decide they can control and it's going to be okay. But this kind of freewheeling cowboy, um, who knows what's going to come next, uh, I don't allow that in Europe. So you notice uh, Elon Musk is a, um, a South African, a guy here by way of Canada, but all his companies are here in America. So uh, Musk was uh, recently interviewed uh, uh, for TED. And uh, maybe I'll uh, take a break and uh, let's, um, uh, let's pick up on uh, some more of these ideas in a minute. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes Well, you might find
We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. With us. With us. With us. The story behind the story, your story, my story, is all in the mix on Lead Stories right here on PRN.FM. This is Eutrice Lead inviting you to share your thoughts and opinions and expand your knowledge about critical issues of the day, Monday through Friday, right after Gary Knowles' show. Listen live to a broadcast or get Lead Stories whenever you want from PRN's archive. You can even rate the show on iTunes. Now pass the word. Tell the story to everyone you know. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward. And we hope you're coming with us. Love, lust, and laughter. Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host, Dr. Diana Wiley, a board-certified sex therapist and a marriage and family therapist. Guests? Colleagues, authors are interviewed, and we sometimes dispense advice to create a format that is both informative and entertaining. If you can't listen live, go to the archives and even rate the show on iTunes. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope that you are coming with us. This is the Rob Cole Bottom Up Radio Show, progressive liberal talk radio. In-depth interviews with leading progressives and the smartest people in the world. Listen at 8 p.m. Wednesday nights at Progressive Radio Network. You're listening to PRN, Progressive Radio Network. Progressive Radio Network, the number one network for those who care about the truth. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Welcome back. This is John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM, or however you're listening. Lots of ways to do it, and um, uh, I should go through those sometime, but you can listen on TuneIn or uh, Ustream or uh, iTunes, and uh, all of mine and the other PRN shows are on uh, Podbean, so mine is visionaries.podbean.com and so is this progressive radio network cool or what? Again, I mentioned before I was listening to uh, uh, Alan Watts this morning and you know, being a 60s person as someone I really appreciate. Anyway, uh, I was just uh, sort of rattling through some free association here and uh, this morning as well as, I mean, just to show how you can, the world we live in. So I'm listening to Alan Watts, who's sort of a, a Taoist, Buddhist, Christian philosopher, um, uh, uh, 
And, you know, he's no longer with us, but there are lots of great recordings of him that we were listening to. And, at this, you know, just be- between doing that, I'm flipping over on uh, TED.com and listening to, it wasn't a TED Talk, it was an interview in this case, with Elon Musk. So with the loss of our great corporate mythological figure, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk is sort of the poster boy of our, our futurist techie uh, CEO today. And so he's founder and CEO of Tesla Motors, makes the Tesla car, um, of SpaceX. They launch for one-tenth the cost that it costs NASA uh, and supply the space station and stuff like that. He's working on his, his heavy launcher, which, uh, you know, to go to Mars. He wants to be there in a couple. He's not talking about, you know, 20, 30 years. He's talking about three or four years. Uh, then he's uh, the head of uh, Solar City, which uh, puts uh, solar panels on your roof. They own the panels, so you don't have to put up the investment. Um, and he is the sort of conceptual originator of Hyperloop. That's a tube that would go from city to city, say San Francisco to L.A., and like, uh, through vacuum and air pressure, it shoots a capsule through there, and you go six, eight hundred miles an hour uh, from one city to the next. And so his latest, his latest project, he started a company called Boring, the Boring Company, B-O-R-I-N-G, play on, uh, on um, you know, exciting versus boring. But this is drilling. So he says, oh, these guys are aware. Uh, these Silicon Valley types, that a new technology has to be 10 times better, an order of magnitude better than an existing technology, or no one's going to adopt it. So if everybody has a something or other, you know, uh, I don't know what, a mousetrap, and you make a mousetrap that's 20% better, uh, I don't think we should be trapping mice. <laughs> There's a mouse in my office. I just leave us some food for it. But anyway, um, um, if you make a mouse trap that's 20% better, no one's going to buy it because why try switch over? It's a whole hassle. If it's 10 times better, people will consider it. And so um, his, his, he, you know, he looks at a problem. He says, why don't we solve it like traffic jams? which are pretty bad in New York, but a total horror story in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities. So why don't we just make, um, of course, we've got a couple of companies unveiled flying cars this year, but there's going to be a limitation to that. Number one, um, you know, they're going to bump into each other. Uh, Number, you know, what what if there's a thousand flying cars uh, going by each other. Number two, they're going to be noisy. So if you live on the 30th floor and there's a flying car going by, you're not going to appreciate that. It's going to make severe downdrafts to hold itself up. You're not going to appreciate that. I mean, I live right next to a heliport, so <laughs> you don't want to stand under the helicopters. Uh, but anyway, there's another possibility. What if you make tunnels? And so 
You just make these networks of tunnels under whatever city, like Los Angeles, and uh, he's got a. If you if you go online, you can find. Uh, if you go to ted dot com, I guess or ted dot org, not sure. But anyway, search for Ted T E D online and catch this talk. You can also see it on YouTube. And they've got videos of uh, his vision for this. There are videos in other places as well. But, you know, it shows your car stopping, going down in an elevator, and then zipped along underground. And this being zipped along would be at maybe 200 miles an hour uh, because they're on, your car's now on a, on a little dolly. It's on tracks. So you don't have to worry about bumping into other cars. So that increases the capacity. And then you say, okay, well, then the traffic will just grow to um, fill up the tunnel. And um, what good's it going to do? He says, no, you just build another layer of tunnel. You can build any number of layers of tunnels. And so there's a lot of room underground to build tunnels to zip traffic around. So that's that's another one of his another one of his uh, another one of his companies, but and then this uh, Tesla thing, you know, it's like the electric automobile, the Tesla electric automobile is just the how sh- what phrase shall we use the camel's nose in the tent, you know, it's just it, it's just the beginning. That first of all, uh, the the key to the car is the battery. And that's the hard part, because let's say you could have a super great battery, cheap, long lasting, recharges in, you know, five minutes, the amount of time it takes to fill your car with gasoline. Just pull into a charging station, zip, it's recharged, it's good for another three, five hundred miles. Suppose and suppose you had and it costs as much as an empty gas tank. Suppose you had that. Well, at that point, all cars would be electric because how many moving parts are there in a gasoline engine? How much does that thing weigh compared to an electric motor? Electric motor's got like one moving part. <laughs> you know, there's no service. There's a, it lasts, you know, maybe 10, 20, 50 years. Uh, and uh, it's totally quiet. You don't need any gearbox because it has maximum torque at any speed. Um, Tesla's just uh, showing off their new truck. They make a a, a long-haul semi-hauler. It's as powerful as any monster diesel truck. Uh, It's got an electric motor, and it drives like a sports car. It has total power at any speed. Um, So it's the battery that's the problem. Because otherwise it'd be a no-brainer. All cars would be electric, and they were electric in the 1920s, before the gasoline engine took off. And um, you know the electric motor is quiet, non-polluting, light, super cheap, uh, one moving part, no service, lasts indefinitely, unlike a gasoline engine. And uh, so, okay, what about this battery? Well. <laughs> uh, Tesla and Elon Musk are just completing their gigafactory. So that's something you can look up. But it's to make lithium-ion batteries cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So eventually they'll get on a, uh, they'll get on a curve and, and become uh, highly affordable. And 
excuse me, this lithium-ion battery, they're selling it now for your home as well. So the problem with solar panels on your roof is just that, okay, um, you know, the solar panels are great all day when you're not home. You get home, it's dark, and you're trying to run your dishwasher, your washing machine, and your TV, and there's no solar power. So what you have to do is store it in a battery. So uh, Tesla's now selling those batteries. So they mean them to be for the home as well as the car. And then the next steps are, if you read um, Hot, Flat, and Crowded by the guy who did The World is Flat. What's his name? Comes to me in a moment. But anyway... He has a beautiful chapter on this electric future in which uh, you bring your electric car home and it's got uh, a lot of leftover capacity. Uh, Maybe you use the electricity from that battery to run your dishwasher. So it all works together. It's all networked. But anyway, um, so (laughs) this Gigafactory is churning out these... um, these lithium-ion batteries. It's huge. I mean, it's you know the size of a dozen football fields. Absolutely humongous. Uh, Tesla built it in partnership with Toshiba. But, no, I'm sorry, Panasonic. Uh, but anyway, um, he said it would only take 100 gigafactories to supply all the batteries for all the electricity for the whole world. You know, it's like, and he's going to do it. He's got one done. He's got a half a dozen more in the planning stage. And he's 10% of the way there. Give it 10 more years. And uh, he's got it. So we're in a world with people thinking this way. You know, so for example, in SpaceX, what step one was um, they make all their stuff. So unlike, let's say, Boeing is making a heavy launcher to go up to the uh, space station, International Space Station. But it's, um, it's costs a certain amount, and they buy parts from all these suppliers. Well, SpaceX makes all their own parts at a one-tenth the cost that it costs anybody else to do it. So right away, their rockets are one-tenth the cost, and now both SpaceX and... Um, Amazon's company, uh, not Amazon, but Jeff Bezos's personal rocket company, are able to land their launchers. In other words, up until now, uh, every time they launch a rocket, they throw the rocket away. It goes into the drink. And you know, it would be like, suppose you took a 747 from New York to California, and they then put it in a crusher and made a new one to fly you home. And every time you took a flight, there'd be a new airplane. Well, it would be pretty expensive, which is why it's so expensive to go into space. But suppose you reuse all that. So now uh, um, SpaceX's rockets, uh, the, the booster launches, you know, launches, and then it comes back down and lands and gets reused. A um, lot of, you know, a lot of questions like, uh, is this rocket going to be able to withstand being reused that often? Uh, and they have to be able to, uh, you know, 
refurbish, you know, how long does it take to refurbish the airplane for you to fly home? <laughs> what, 20 minutes? <laughs> you know, they ask you to please uh, give the the stewardess or steward all your trash as they come down the aisle. They make a quick zip down to vacuum clean and uh, pick up any extra litter. Um, get your baggage out of there. Refuel the airplane. Uh, usher on the next uh, the uh, people for the next flight, and it takes off again. So that's what they're they're looking for in these uh, space vehicles. That they you know the, that was supposed to be the idea with the shuttle that they could relaunch them every two weeks, and it turns out it was you know like three months uh, between launches for each shuttle. So. But they're really, you know, looking to get that done. And so now we have these people, these billionaires, uh, although I don't think Elon Musk is a billionaire unless you count his uh, stock, which he can't sell. But <clears throat> uh, Bezos is. And they're just going to do this stuff. They're just saying, you know, traffic problems. Let's make an, uh, an underground network of tunnels. Um it's too expensive to get into orbit. Um, you know, NASA's dropped the ball on going to Mars. Let's figure out how to do it at one one hundredth of the cost that it costs NASA to do it by a um, not outsourcing, making our own parts, and b uh, although they do sometimes outsource, there's a lot of stuff that off-the-shelf components will do just fine. You know, at one hundredth the cost, you know, like the circuit boards in your in your phone, they're pretty reliable. Uh, circuit boards in your laptop, they're pretty reliable. But if they're going to make the same circuit board for a satellite, uh, they will hand make it with gold components uh, for a hundred times as much money. Well, <clears throat> uh, if you know reliability is. Uh, is, a, is an important issue. Maybe you want to do that. But what happens when the, when the um, off-the-shelf stuff is even more reliable than the handmade stuff? You know, because it's all being monitored by lasers and everything is, you know, accurate to within a millionth of an inch. I remember years ago, they, you'd see commercials in uh, uh, advertising in the magazines for Rolls-Royce. And it would show uh, a craftsman wearing a leather apron with a file uh, working on the radiator. And, you know, it would say, our craftsman takes 20 hours to file down the corner of the radiator. What? I mean, you know, in the meantime, BMW is using laser cutters and super laser measurements, making the thing 10 times more accurate of one-tenth the cost and 10 times more reliable than the hand labor. You know, why there's sometimes some places where you just don't want to use hand labor. Um, you want super precise computerized machinery. And <clears throat> so... By taking advantage of these super economies, uh, you know, we're getting into space at one-tenth the cost, and soon they're going to be a tenth again, one-hundredth the cost. And so these people are thinking this way, you know, that to say, um, you know, Elon Musk said, what is it with these uh, high-speed railroads? It just doesn't make sense. We've got to be doing it another way. And that was the vacuum tube. Well, 
getting back to the 60s where I began this, I was working on directing research on an urban project in the 60s, and transportation was a key issue. And two of the things we looked at was two projects by MIT. One was called Project Genie. And that was the idea that computers were now, then in the late 60s, at a point where it could track all the travelers so that if you wanted to go somewhere, it could send you a, a taxi that was already going in that general direction and had two passengers in it, and you'd be the third passenger. So you would go to a telephone pole and you'd rub the pole, you know, and tell it uh, where you want to go and zoom. This taxi would show up. It's called Uber. <laughs> we have it. <laughs> you know, but interestingly, if you look at how Uber worked, these were real cowboys. They just ignore the law. You know, they uh, everything they're doing is illegal. You, can, you can't just run taxis in New York. You have to need a medallion. A medallion's a million dollars. Or was. They're now half a million because of Uber. Uh, but they... Um, uh, so here we are. Uh, it turns out that computer is now in your in your cell phone, and you can call an Uber or a Lyft, and they come by and pick you up. Lyft is much cheaper because it you know it's got people already going your way. Uh, Uber is a custom ride, and then <clears throat> the other project we were looking at was called um, uh, gravity vacuum tubes. And the idea was you make this tube going from Los Angeles to San Francisco, New York to Washington. It goes underground, and it goes down, 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 and then level, and then up, up, up. Well, going down, 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 the train, which is fits tightly in the tube, uh, is picking up speed due to gravity. And then it zips along from New York to Washington or San Francisco to L.A. And then it comes uphill again to get to the surface. That slows it down. So it uses very little energy. It uses gravity. And it goes three, four hundred miles an hour, which is a lot faster than an airplane when you don't have to count your trip to the airport. <laughs> I had some friends that got into Kennedy Thursday night, last Thursday night, it took three hours to get out of the airport. They missed the whole event they were coming here for because some water main had broken or something. And uh, so, you know, it's a zoo. What What is that? Um, we should have a tube that just goes right to Midtown, you know, from, uh, uh, well, that's what Elon Musk is doing with his Hyperloop. His is above ground. This have doing it underground is a little bit iffy with these tight tolerances in terms of earth moving and earthquakes and stuff like that. Another project we looked at that time was called super flywheels. So if you're going to have an alternative to gasoline, you're going to have an electric car. Okay, how do you power it? There's battery. Uh, there's supercapacitors. We know they're not going to work because Elon Musk did his Ph.D. in capacitors, and he'd be using them in its Teslas if he could get them to work. So far, they can't. They're part of the package. Uh, they give you the, uh, the jolt of electricity for when you take off. But And the other one is mechanical. Suppose you just had a spinning wheel, and you set that wheel spinning with uh, at a charging station, and then you tap into it 
to spin the generator to make the electricity to power your engine. Well, uh, they're still working on that one. The problem with that one was that the speed that the flywheel would have to go is such that it would fly apart. <laughs> it would just it would just fly out of its container. Uh, so they're still working on that one. Anyway, um, thank you for tuning in, and um, for my um, endless digressions here. We'll get back to my problems with these French thinkers on future shows, but I strongly recommend uh, go online and catch uh, Elon Musk's TED Talk. He covers all this material. So this is Visionaries on PRN, Progressive Radio Network, uh, at prn.fm, and you can hear our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And some of the back shows include uh, my interviews with John David Ebert on the French Thinkers and some other shows with him, Natasha Vita Moore, our most prominent transhumanist, Bill Catavalis, one of our uh, really interesting futurist thinkers. Uh, Bill's been a futurist for a long time. He's 92 now. Um, we had Bob Walter from the Joseph Campbell Foundation talking about who Joseph Campbell was, played some excerpts, did a show on McLuhan where we played some excerpts of McLuhan. So you want to catch that and sort of cover uh, what McLuhan's all about. So do catch our back shows Again, at visionaries.podbean.com. Again, John LaBelle, Visionaries, and see you again next Monday. 